Good morning, church. Good morning, good morning. Man, you can just tell from that voiceover, whoever did that voiceover, just a great man, you know? Come on, laugh with me. Or at, one of the two. So good to be with you, to open up God's word. Uh, special hello to our friends online and our friends who are in Hayward. Hayward, I miss you. I'll be back next week, I promise. Um, but I am just glad to be able to open up God's word. I feel like it's always a blessing to be able to do that, especially since we have brothers and sisters around the world who are not able to do that. And so praise God that we can. Amen? Amen. We're, in, <clears throat> we're in a series called Free Indeed, and we've been asking this question, how does the gospel free us from the things that keep us in bondage? Uh, in Galatians 5.1, Paul says something very interesting. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. For freedom, Christ has set us free. So that means that, that Jesus has released us from our initial bondage and that we are to continue to live in a state of freedom after our salvation. Well, today in our sermon, we're going to be talking about how the gospel sets us free from being restless in order to be content. Now, contentment is not something that is, I would say, very popular or sought after in our culture, uh, both inside and outside of the church. In fact, Marsha Richens, in an article in American Behavioral Scientist magazine, said this, that contentment is not a virtue prized in contemporary society. In fact, the numerous marketing images that we see each day aim to make us discontent with our present situation and to increase our desire for material goods that hold out the promise of making us happy. I mean, you see that as you, just, if you, as you cruise online, as you watch um, uh, TV shows, media, advertisements, everything has made us to feel, or everything is designed to actually make us feel that I, I don't have what I need and I need more. And so we, we play the comparison game to other people, especially online, on social media. We'll see the way that other people are living and we'll say, oh, if only I could live his life or her life or had what they had, then I'll be happy. This is a feeling as Westerners, especially here in America, the, um, that it, it goes like this, that, that things should, we have this in our minds, that things should always be getting better. Right, that that's just a mindset, that things should always be getting better in our lives, and if they're not, then something's wrong. Someone is, someone is after you, someone is attacking you, someone is keeping you from things getting better. It's one of the big differences between, remember the show The Office, right? It was one of the big differences between the British version, which was the original, and the American version. If you watch the American version, man, you, things are getting better for the characters. They're progressing, right? You're rooting for Jim and Pam the whole time, the first few seasons. You're like, come on, meet each other. Yeah, they do. They get married. And you watch them, and all of the characters go through something, uh, go through a process of things getting better. Whereas the British version, if you've watched it, it is drab, nothing is getting better, it's just always the same horrible existence all the time, nothing is getting better. And the creator, Ricky Gervais, said that is, it had to be that way because as Americans, you all believe that things are going to get better in your life. It's just hardwired into us. And so, with that mindset, we, we pursue, we are restless in our souls with this expectation of why isn't my life improving? 
Many of us were brought up with the notion that you can be whatever you want, and so just go pursue that with all of your heart, that if you work hard enough, you can get ahead, there's upward mobility, and that every generation uh, is better off than the last. Now, whether these things are true or not, whether they're good or not, I think there's a sense in probably many of us here that we want them to be true. We long for them to be true. On top of that, there's this hunger for more. We want the new cell phone, we want the new house, we want the better job. We're not satisfied with the way things are going in our lives. Now, hear me, it's not wrong to work hard, it's not wrong to achieve, it's not wrong to upgrade, okay? Those aren't wrong things. But like so many things in our hearts, good things can become ultimate things, and now we have stepped into idolatry. But I want to ask this question. What if this is as good as it gets in this life? What if this, right now, never improved? What if the circumstances of your job never got better? What if your finances never improved? What if your family never improved? Does that mean that something's wrong? Does that mean that you have failed or your faith has failed? Or that you have a lack of faith? Or that God no longer cares for you? I would say no to all of those things because There is a way to live content apart from the restless desire of wanting more. There is a way to face hardship, to face the lows and the anguish of life, as well as the highs and the celebrations with a heart of contentment. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 4 this morning. Philippians is a short letter written by the Apostle Paul. It's sometimes known as the letter of joy because of how many times Paul mentions joy in the letter. By the way, he wrote it from prison, which is ironic. The, The letter itself, though, is very hopeful. There's not the same kind of rebuke that you find in other letters, like in the letter to the Galatians. And I always find it interesting, even if there is a rebuke or dirty laundry, how crazy is it that this church had its dirty laundry aired, and for 2,000 years we've been reading about it, right? Can you imagine if all of ours got aired, right? No, let's not do that. Okay, I'm gonna invite you to stand as we read Philippians chapter four, beginning in verse 10. Philippians chapter four, beginning in verse 10. Paul says as he languished in prison. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. 
And this is God's, words for, God's word for us today. And all God's people said, amen. amen, and you may be seated. To help us understand this reality of contentment, we're going to be looking at three different areas in our sermon. The first is what contentment is, what it's not, why we aren't content, and how to become content. What it is, what it's not, why we aren't, and how to become. First, what contentment is. Uh, Our English word content comes from a Latin word contentus, which means satisfied, uh, and in turn is derived from a verb contentir, which means to hold in or to contain. Think of it like a, like a nice hug. Uh, the word content refers to things that are held in something. Uh, I like this definition, that contentment is the acceptance of things as they are, as the wise and loving providence of a God who knows what is good for us, who so loves us, and always seeks our good. Jeremiah Burroughs describes contentment as this, that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. It is a work of the spirit indoors. It is a box of precious ointment, very comforting and useful for troubled hearts in times of troubled conditions. Contentment is knowing and submitting submitting one's heart to God's wise providence. Providence. You know what that word providence means? If you've ever taken care of a child, you know what the word providence means. Because a child, especially when they're little babies, are completely dependent upon their parents or whoever's caring for them. And it's crazy because in the animal world, right, when a giraffe is born, baby giraffe, what does it do? it gets up and starts running. It starts doing laps around the Serengeti, right? It just pops right up. Almost all mammals, they're born and they just poof. All right, so what are we doing? I'm a tiger? Okay, tell me how to tiger, right? Like that's just what they do. Humans, it takes us at least two years just to become interesting, right? And and personality doesn't even show up until maybe six or seven, right? My point is, (laughs) <laughs> babies, toddlers, the young, they, they need our, as caretakers, whether you're a parent or not, they need our providence. They need our provision to take care of them. And even as kids get older, it doesn't change. It just, or it doesn't go away. It just changes, right? That providence, that care just uh, morphs into where they're at in life. In the same way, You and I, but to a greater degree, you and I are completely dependent on God for everything in our lives. You know, you think of the ancients. The ancients would look up at the sky and they would ask God to make it rain for the crops to grow. Uh, Today, we look at the sky and and maybe it's not our crops because I don't think any of us in here are farmers. If you are, I apologize, but I don't think there's a lot in here. And we look up at the sky and we say, God, would you give me direction on a major Would you lead me into what job I should take? God, is this the person that I should marry? God, is this how I should spend this raise that I just received, right? We look up and we are are acknowledging our dependence upon God. James 1 says that every good and perfect gift is from above. Contentment is is an acknowledgement of God's hand in all of our needs, 
Think of the analogy that Jesus gives in Matthew 7. He says, you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. You know how to take care of your kids. <clears throat> when your kids are in need, right, you, you, you take care of them. You're, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. And you're evil. And Jesus says, yeah, and your, he <clears throat> your heavenly father, who's not evil, he knows how to take care of you even better. And he always does. And he always does. God knows what we need, he knows, and he will provide it. Second, contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to, to, and delights in God's wisdom. So it's one thing that God is providing for us, and we look to the Lord to give us all that we need, but it's something else to say, God, I know that you're going to give me everything that I need, and I trust that your wisdom is better than mine. Does that make sense? Right? We're trusting that what God gives us is exactly what we need and what he withholds we were better off without. And I, that's a hard one, isn't it? Because how many of us have been praying for the same thing for years? And for, according to the Lord's wisdom, I'm not going to tell you why, but according to the Lord's wisdom, he's withheld it. And see, we trust in that wisdom that God knows what he's doing. Contentment is not just an acknowledgement in his hand, but also in his mind. And this is actually more profound than you think, because when we are trusting in not only what God gives, but also why he gives it, we are acknowledging and saying that God knows better than me. Oof. And isn't that a hard place to, to get to sometimes? I mean, it's easy when, like, you are sliding into third and um, you're about to score, go get the, score, the winning run. It's easy when you get the raise. It's easy when your kids are all at the table and they're like, can we do the dishes? And you're like, oh, man, God, you're giving me exactly what I need. You know better, man. You know the best way, God. It's another thing when you get laid off. It's another thing when our kids are disobedient. It's another thing when there's chaos and waves in our life. See, God knows better than me in the good times, and God knows better than me when I'm in the storm. And I, I want to I grow in, in, in being content in both of these. You know what I mean? Do you know, by the way, do you know how God answers our prayers typically as we're praying? Praying and putting requests before him. In my experience, it's, it, he answers in these four ways. And no, I did not come up with these on my own. I borrowed them from someone else, but this is what he says. When we're asking the Lord for something, he says, no, I love you too much. Or he says, no, not yet. Or he says, yes, but not exactly the way that you're thinking. Or yes, and here's more. But see, I wanna be okay in all four of those, right? I wanna be content in all four of those answers. Contentment is also this mysterious mixture of gracious joy and sorrow. Look what Paul says in verse 11. He says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation, whatever situation, I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. 
One of the great difficulties in life is that we don't know what's going to happen. I know you're like, well, no duh, Jason. Okay, but let's just rewind the 21st century, like the last 23 years. Who could have seen that coming? Who, who could have predicted the ups and downs, the hurts, the heartaches, the joys, the celebrations, all of the things that have happened? And, and sometimes what we'll say is, well, when things slow down, then. Have you ever said that? You know, maybe it's in a chaotic time of life, just busy time of life, and then so you'll say something like, when things slow down, when things get easy, then I'll do some hard work, or then. But my experience and what I'm learning, and what I'm learning the hard way, just because of my own stubbornness, is that life does not slow down. Life does not wait for us to catch up. Life does not wait for us to catch our breath. Contentment is a person that exists in a state of stability and faith in times of overwhelming joy and sorrow. That it's possible to live contented lives in the greatest storms. That's what contentment is. But let me tell you what it's not. Contentment is not living carefree. Sitting by the, the contentment is not, you should, we should not have a picture in our minds that to be content means you're sitting by the pool, you're drinking lemonade, the kids are playing baseball, there's birds flying over, there's like some cool reggae music in the back, and you're just like, that's contentment. I've reached all my goals, I've, I've satisfied all the longings of my heart, now I can be content. That's not contentment. And Paul knew, Paul understood this, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse, beginning in verse 24, he says, five times I've received at the hand of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. Uh, frequent journeys, dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold exposure. And apart from these things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And he says in our passage, I've learned contentment. This is a man who is not living carefree and has learned contentment. Contentment is also not the absence of relational conflict and anguish of heart. Paul knew this. He says, I have learned contentment. And he had, this was a man that had, this is a man who had great um, relational conflict in his life. Not just from the Judaizers, his, his uh, religious opponents, not just from the Gentiles, but even within the church itself. You remember in Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas, they're like the dynamic duo that God, the Holy Spirit is set apart for a season, right? They're going around, they're planting churches, 
There's like, man, and you know, you're reading Acts 15. If you haven't read the end, sorry, spoiler. But yeah, like, and you're just reading Acts 13, Acts 14, and they're going into dangerous places and they're planting churches and people are getting saved and they're making disciples and it's beautiful. And then at the end, they, they come back to Jerusalem and they give this report. And the, and the brothers in Jerusalem, the leaders of the Jerusalem church are like, this is amazing. And, and God is turning the church paradigm upside down and Gentiles are getting saved. And, and, and this is an amazing thing. And then at the end of chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas split. And not because they were like, okay, you go that way and I'll go this way. They had a disagreement. They had relational conflict that drove a wedge between them. Now you and I look at it and go, okay, but that sent them in two different directions and, and, and more was done for the kingdom. We know that. But you gotta believe that that affected Paul, that affected Barnabas. And Paul says, I've learned contentment. That it is possible in the midst of great personal and relational turmoil to be content, to be satisfied, to be safe, to be contained in. Thirdly, contentment is not a life, is not a life without longing and groaning in our distress. To live contented lives doesn't mean we're calling, doesn't mean we're not calling out to God to change our circumstances. Don't get me wrong, don't hear me the wrong way here. It is absolutely a good and beautiful and healthy thing for you and I to cry out to God and say, God, I'm in trouble, save me, rescue me, change my life, change my circumstances, help me find a new job, help me find new friends, help me, help me. That is a good thing. And just because you're asking God to change your circumstances doesn't mean you can't live a content life. What did Paul say, again, in 2 Corinthians 12? It says he pleaded, pleaded three times with God to remove the thorn in his flesh. Contentment is not saying, don't worry, I'm okay. I'll just, I'll just get over it. I'll just deal with it. Sometimes we can live in a place of contentment and be asking God to change things. Don't stop asking God to change things. Don't, don't think that God doesn't want to hear your prayers and that, well, you're just not being content. No. God actually invites us. He's a good father who invites us to call out to him. Amen. Let me tell you why I, I, I believe we aren't content. The first reason is this. We're in love with the world. The New Testament talks a lot about the way of the world, the systems of the world, and the way that the world works, and how it's completely contrary to the way of Jesus. Think about it. Think about the values of the world. Think about just Western values. Western values are all about money, power, success, hyper-individualism. You can be your own person. Follow your dreams to conform without uh, to conformity without confirmation, which means just kind of changing your outer self without giving much thought to what it is that you're changing to. 
That's Western civilization, but now you have, over the last 20 years, you've had this growing movement of postmodern values, which is to deconstruct everything without reconstructing it. Over-sexualization of everything. You define you, you do you, you define your own truth. And these values, whether they're Western, Western civilization, postmodern, these values rule the world. And they seem to be, in some ways, they seem to be, or they can feel like they're at odds with each other. I think they're lockstep with each other because they go against the way of Jesus. These values may rule the world, but each side is demanding compliance from its followers. And whether you find yourself on the left or the right, if you adopt the values of the world, if you adopt the values of the world, you are rejecting Jesus. I'm talking to my Christian brothers and sisters in the room. If you're not a Christian, I'm speaking to my brothers and sisters. If you have adopted or tried to pile on the values of the world and commingled them with the way of Jesus, you have rejected Jesus. In fact, James, the half-brother of Jesus, said this in James 4. He says, he calls his readers, not the best way to win followers, but he says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There's this incredibly sad story of a man in the New Testament, and there's only three verses on him. We don't know anything else about him. And I, I kid you not, whenever I think about him, whenever I read these three verses, I, I sometimes find myself just getting very emotional. And it's a man named Demas. And, and you can read about Demas. Uh, Paul speaks about him at the end of two of his letters and says, this is, you know, Demas is a man who, uh, who's with me. He's, he's a fellow worker. He is, um, I've counted on him. And you, you get the sense that Paul loves this young man, that Demas has been with Paul on his journeys and the dangers of the world, uh, and dangers that come with planting churches in the Roman world. But then you read in Paul's last letter in 2 Timothy 4, you read 2 Timothy 4, verse 9, he says, do your best to come to me soon. He's in prison, Paul is, and he says in verse 10, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me, and gone to Thessalonica. I have no, we have no idea what happened to Demas. Did he repent? God, I hope so. But here's a man who appeared to be sold out for Jesus to plant churches, go into dangerous places, put his life at risk, and yet the allure of the world led him away. The reason why many of us, myself included, find ourselves to be anxious, distracted, and malcontent is because we're not following the way of Jesus in our lives, but we're following the way of the world. Ask yourself this question, what can the world offer that Jesus can't? Or better yet, 
What has Jesus already given to you and done for you that compared to the things of the world um, don't seem so beautiful and magnificent? And this comes from this mindset uh, where we say, if only I could just get that house, if I could just get the right job, if I could just get my kids into that school, if I could just, if I could just, if I could just fill in the blank. And what this does is it puts a condition on our happiness, on our satisfaction that we manufacture. It's arbitrary. We, it's all based on us and our preferences. It has nothing to do with the way of God. It has nothing to do with God's will. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 9, he says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Secondly, we don't live content lives like so many other aspects of the Christian life, is because we're expecting it to um, happen all of a sudden and not be a process. The, the Christian life, the life of the disciple, the this, this, this sanctification, which is a process by which we become more and more like Jesus, it's a process. We use the word, it's a journey. And, and, and in the discipleship world, we, we talk about how, how um, the destination, that God cares more about the journey than the destination, because it's on, the, it's on the journey that God is doing all of this work in our lives, right? The destination is great. We'll get there, right? It's like what Pastor Ryan talked about last week. There's, there's the promise and there's the payoff, but then there's the process in between. And we're living right now, breathing in our birthday suits. We are, we are in the process. We are on the journey where God is making us into, a, into, into a, a version of ourselves that we could not do on our own. And yet, so many of us, myself included, we want just the switch. We don't want a slow dim. We want the switch. Flip the switch, God. I'm ready to be content right now. Ready? Go. But see, it's in that process of becoming more like Jesus that God does the deepest work in our hearts, right? Where we begin to let go of, of the idols that we're holding on to so that, so that God can transform us. And I believe God wants to transform you. It's interesting, Paul says this twice in the Philippian passage that we, that we read in Philippians 4. He says, I have learned. I have learned. He didn't say I became instantly. He says, I have learned. And one of the things that, one of the things that I have found to be true is the best way to learn things sometimes is to fail. And it's to go through hardship. And it's to go through a place where, where, where I realize just how dependent on God I really am because it strips away any ability that I think I have. Thirdly, we're not content simply because of this. God's not enough. God's not enough. This is connected to the first point of being in love with the world. 
I read this book about 15 years ago. It's called Your God is Too Small. And it's a great short little book. It's honestly one of those books where like, you can just read the title and you're like, mm, and just walk away and think about it, right? Like, you should read the book. It's a great book. But you could also just read the title and go, hmm, I think he's right, you know, and, and just kind of process that. But I, I, the premise of the book is that we really don't believe that God is able to sustain us in all things. Um, we really don't believe, you know, we sang the song, um, He Won't Fail Us. We sang that? It was the second song we sang this morning. Um, and there's that, I love the line in there, he won't. And I think some of us go, he might. He might. He might fail, right? Paul says this in 1 Timothy 6, 7. He says, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. You didn't bring in any special DNA. You didn't bring in any talents. You didn't bring in any abilities. Nobody was like jiving across the stage and like, oh man, God's like, get that guy on the team. We need that guy on the team. Paul says, you didn't bring anything to the table. You ain't taking anything out. Dependence. God is enough. Now, you may be here today and maybe you've come to one of these conclusions. One, you you're hearing about this idea of contentment. Maybe you didn't use those words in the past, but you know there's been this restless in your, restlessness in your life where you are captivated by the things of the world. You are constantly, your attention is on the next thing, the next thing. I need this. I have to have this. If I don't have this, then I can't be happy. And you're ready to let go of that. Maybe you are admitting to yourself this morning that the facade of positive, carefree living isn't work for you. You know, your, your mantra of, man, I'm easy, whatever, that you just tell everybody, you're realizing that's a lie. Maybe this morning you realize you have such a love for the world, it's stronger than you realize, and you desperately want to let that go. Or that you've been using God as a means to an end not the end himself. He's not enough to you. You're just using him. So then how can we become content? Well, we become content by embracing our circumstances. Look again at verse 11. Paul says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and, and need. So what's the, the takeaway here? The takeaway is that even though we are invited to pray and cry out and beg and plead to the Lord to change our circumstances, that the content person accepts his or her circumstances. That both in the calm and in the chaos, God is with us. Get rid of, expel from your mind that hard times means you haven't been faithful. Expel that. Because there is sin in the world which creates hard times. Now, I didn't say consequences of your dumb decisions. <laughs> I didn't say that. 
Come on. But hardship is a result of the sin, and God is with us. He is with you. Second, we grow in contentment by receiving grace from God. So you remember when Paul prayed for the thorn to be removed three times, begged, pleaded. And what was Jesus' response? He didn't just say, no, I'm not going to. What did he say? My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is... The idea of contentment is that we are receiving, every single day we are receiving grace from God. And grace is unmerited favor. It's God saying, I'm going to give you good things, not because you deserve it, not because you've earned it, not because you're awesome, but because I'm good, because I'm awesome, and I want to take care of you. Yes, and so as we... As we receive grace, we enjoy grace. And we are reminded that our God loves us, that he is sufficient. I love, I love what, what Jesus says, my power is made perfect in weakness. So that means the more we acknowledge that I'm not enough, the more we realize he is. Third, we see contentment in our lives by pursuing godliness. First Timothy 6.6, 6, Paul says, but godliness with contentment is a great gain. Paul is saying there's a correlation here between becoming more like God, the more, and the more we become like God, the more content we become. I mean, this is the idea of, and we use this language around here, this is the idea of embodying love becoming more like Jesus, becoming more like the person of Jesus. Jesus was the most godly because he is God, and so we are wanting to become more and more like him. We're embodying the very love of God in us, and it's transforming us more and more into the person of God. That's why, friends, that's why it is so important for us to be in the scriptures <clears throat> and not just when I tell you to. Not just when Pastor Ryan says, open your Bibles. But, but that God would give us his word, that God would give us prayer. He invites us to have communion and fellowship with him through prayer. That, that God invites us to, to be walking with him in fasting, in Sabbath, in all of these different ways we become. These are vehicles to becoming more and more like God. Finally, and believe me, I've been using every muscle in my body to hold back from getting here. We can live content because Jesus lives in us. Philippians 4:13. We all know this verse. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, I am not going to rag on any of you 
who maybe once read this verse and thought, man, I can join the NBA because of this verse. Okay? This is, that is not, and, and I, I'm, not, I'm not dissing anybody. I'm just saying that is not what this verse is saying. In context, this verse teaches us that we are able to live in peace, to be in want, to go through anguish, to lose, to gain, to win, to see our circumstances never change, and be content. Do you know why? Because Jesus is our strength. Not yours, not mine, not this church, not your job, nothing. Because Jesus is our strength. Paul says, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret. And the secret is that we can do all things through Jesus who gives us strength. The secret of contentment is not positive thinking, it's not having earthly success, it's knowing that even if the thing that you've been praying to have for the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years, that you thought in this life was all you wanted more than anything else, if it never happened, you could still be satisfied. Do you know how Paul ends this letter? It's not on the screen, so just scroll down or turn or go down, but he says in verse 19, it is on the screen, just kidding. (laughs) June 25th, fools. My God will supply every need of yours according to the riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And if God knows better than me, He's going to give me exactly what I need. And I can trust that. I can know that Jesus is enough. I can know that Jesus was not content until he had the one thing in heaven that he didn't have. You. Me. Even if our circumstances never change, even if this is as good as it gets, What we have in Jesus as our strength, our rock, our stability, our hope, our love, our acceptance, it can never be taken away. Jesus is enough. At the beginning of the sermon, we talked about how the the definition of, of contentment was this idea of being satisfied and contained. Faith in Jesus Christ for our salvation means that we can be satisfied in this life because we are safely contained in the wise providential, loving arms of God. Church, I know some of you are in bondage. And Christ has come to set you free. Not only freedom from the bondage of sin and death, but also to free you from the things that keep you from experiencing new life. He wants to free you. God offers us a different way, a better way, a way that goes through him, not through us. Won't you trust him? Won't you look to him? Won't you, won't you, won't you at least consider that God knows better than you, that God knows better than me? Won't you consider 
that what God brings into your life or withholds from you is for your good and your flourishing so that you might more be transformed into the image of his son in order to glorify him with your whole life? Would you at least consider that? And those of you who would accept that, I pray that you would begin to find freedom more and more every single day from the bondage of restlessness and live a content life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I believe that you supply all of our needs. I believe that there is nothing in me or anyone in this room that makes it possible for us to take care of ourselves, to meet our basic needs. I believe with all of my heart that all of us here would be lost, would be despondent, would be in despair without you. And that no one here, especially me, deserves your kindness, your love, your mercy, or your grace. And yet, you give it to us most profoundly through your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we wanna be free. We wanna be free to live and receive all that you have for us. God, would you help us in this area of contentment that we would find our satisfaction, find our joy, find our happiness, find our containment in you and you alone. Be transformed so that we might transform the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's praise God together this morning for his faithfulness to us.